Welcome back to Bootability, a weekly interview series about the amazing ability people have to change our lives and the world if we're brave enough to tap into it. These are honest conversations with people of all walks of life reflecting on their own bootability, what it looks like, how it feels, and how the philosophy of SGI Nichiren Buddhism, which is based on the practice of chanting Nam Myo Ho Renge Kyo, can be used to bring it out. I'm your host, Jihee Jolly. Before we start today, we have a quick announcement. Our request for listener voicemails in December was so popular that we're bringing it back, and this week we are looking for questions about love. In February, we'll be doing an episode about love and relationships, so no matter how big or small your questions, if you'd like to send one in, please email us a voice memo, which you can record on your phone, and then email to podcast at sgi-usa.org preferably by January 26th. Please keep the message to no more than two minutes and submit only if you're comfortable having it aired on the show. You can remain anonymous if you want to, just let us know in the email. Now let's hear today's show, which is all about finding yourself and your purpose in the world, especially if you feel like you don't belong anywhere. We spoke with Falcon Sang, an artist from Los Angeles, California, who grew up on the east side of LA. I knew something was different because it was a room full of like the most diverse people ever. Like people that I have interacted with in different areas of my life. They were all in the same room. For the first time I had ever seen something like that. That's Falcon sharing about his first experience at a Buddhist gathering. He started chanting a few years ago when he was 24, after a long journey of feeling out of place and grappling with his sense of purpose as an artist. I asked him to describe a little bit about his background before we get into the story. When I was young, you know, the first time I like saw a firearm was like uh, at the grocery store <laughs> that we would always like go get groceries from. And we were leaving the grocery store, I think, or we went to Hollywood Video. Remember Hollywood Video? <laughs> yes. Um, that was like next door to Food for Less. And so we were leaving Hollywood Video and uh, drove by the grocery store and like dude was like laid out. The cops had tackled him and like the gun was like it was like a silver revolver. I'll never forget what it looked like. And uh, I remember like looking out the window. I was real little. And so that was like my first kind of introduction to like this is the neighborhood that I'm in. So on top of that, you know, my background is uh, I'm half Polynesian and half white. That's like the easy way for me to explain it. There's like a lot of other stuff in there. So my last name, Sang, is Chinese. Um, the neighborhood that I grew up in was mostly uh, Hispanic or Latino. And so when I was young, you know, in that neighborhood, I looked very, very white. Like you would never be able to tell like this is a mixed kid. And so I got I got called like the white boy, um, which was confusing to me because I didn't really know any other white people. So I was like, so who am I supposed to like? How do how am I supposed to act if like, you know, my last name is Chinese, but like the Asian kids like didn't really want to hang out with me, you know, and like there were no white people. And so like uh, a lot of my friends and, you know, girlfriends through the years were happened to be black. So I had this like good mix, like kind of idea of like, like the environment that I was in, but it was really confusing to me, you know? Hmm. So, so the neighborhood's dangerous. I get bullied at school because I look different. 
and my name is Falcon Sang, you know, which uh, one of the things I used to hear growing up is like, hey, man, your name is a complete sentence. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, ah, ha, never heard that before. So, but I, you know, I would get picked on like that. And um, I got jumped one time on my birthday and like stuff like that would happen. Mm -hmm. So never really kind of fit in. And then when I would go home, you know, I would kind of have like a, like a, I just felt like I had a difficult time fitting in in my family, you know? <laughs> and so, so all of my environments kind of, kind of challenged me in many ways growing up. So I think it kind of created like a, like a person who was just kind of like in survival mode, you know? So like around that same time, like, um, uh, my, my family was, uh, heavily involved in the church, uh, it was like a Christian church. And so, um, so growing up, I kind of thought of like God and heaven as the thing that was going to save me from this environment that I just felt so out of place in, you know. So I was able to kind of develop like uh, different masks for like all of the groups that I would be a part of, you know. Um, that was like another kind of survival thing I had to develop because... I had friends that were like in rival gangs, you know, and I didn't, I never wanted to like <laughs> accidentally like say something about somebody else and, you know, mm. so I had, I had to like really change the way that I behaved and the way that I moved in these different circumstances. So, you know, by the time I was in my teens and became like a young adult and stuff, I was, I felt that I had no foundation, you know, um, when I left that neighborhood, I went to school in uh, Long Beach. You know, Long Beach is, is pretty far away from where I grew up. And uh, at, at the university, there was like a, a large demographic of white people. I've, I finally, in my mind, like, these must be my, this must be my crowd. This must be my people. And uh, I would find myself like hanging out with them and just kind of still these feelings of like, I don't understand what they're talking about. Yeah, I have I have so many more questions about that, but it's just um, so interesting hearing you say all of this because, um, I mean, first of all, I think these questions of identity and like where do you belong, it seems like it was really pointed for you because of you know the community you grew up in and then the community you went to and being mixed race, you know, and many people have that. But then sometimes you do look like the people that you come from and you still don't feel like you fit in with them. Yeah, you know absolutely. what I mean. So absolutely, it's such a um, this is such a, yeah such an important topic because I feel like we can't really do anything in the world um, if we can't solidify who we are first. So that's what I want to no. talk a bit more about today. Um, but but just a question, just hearing you say all of that, because I, I can't help but think that like underneath all of these experiences, there's like a little kid that has to come home and go to bed every night. And what did that kid feel? Like what was your, where was your heart at? Or what was your struggle? Does that make mm. sense? Yeah. Oh man. I have never been asked that before. Um, empty. I felt empty. I felt worthless, you know? Mm. And I remember, like, <clears throat> I remember nights, like, laying in bed, and it was just, like, uh, 
you know, when you're when you're little in a circumstance like that, it it's so hard to see anything except your pain, you know. Mm. And so, like, I remember there were nights where, like, uh, my bedroom uh, for uh, most of the year, I got to see the moon. So it just like shine into my bedroom, you know. Um, and uh, I remember like uh, I've always been artistic and I've always loved stories and and that was like that was the adventurous little kid in me that was fighting this other version of me that was developing like this just depressed and like like broken version of me too, you know. So I've always had these, like, I think, like, little kids battling in my heart. Mm. Um, and, of course, like, you know, I had many happy memories in my household, you know, like, um, many Christmases where I, I knew that, like, we maybe weren't doing so well financially, but then, like, the Christmas tree would just look amazing, you know? Mm. And so, like, I, I remember these these struggles, but... Yeah, I, I think that from a young age, I was unable to develop a strong sense of self, you know. So that's like often what I would come home and then I would escape into into artistic whatever it was for that week. You know, I drew like sketches. I, uh, you know, sang in choirs and performed in plays and like all of these outlets that I could find, you know, to try and figure out, like, who am I? Where do I belong? What do I like? Does it matter? Mm. You know? Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. I remember when we spoke on the phone, um, you shared that you then went kind of on quite the journey to find uh, some answers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To, you know, your role in the world and, um, like, a sense of purpose. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit of, that and kind of how did you end up finding Buddhism? Yeah, so as I got older and started to, uh, you know, try to plan my life after high school, um, one of the things that I considered, uh, because I had joined like a police cadet program in high school, and so my heart, I think, has always been on trying to make my environment better, you know? because my environment was often so challenging to me. And so one of the ways that I wanted to do that was, you know, I thought maybe I'll just join the military, you know. Uh, so I was considering enlisting in the Marines right out of high school and then, you know, doing three, four years and then maybe going to film school afterwards or going to school for music or, you know, one of these arts that I had really started to lean on. Um, but uh, but yeah, that that didn't end up happening, and um, so one of the events that sort of sent me on this journey of like trying so many different things was that my uh, my grandmother passed away, you know, and I remember at the time the the church that I belonged to, you know essentially had told me that because she hadn't accepted Jesus, she was going to, like, burn in hell for eternity, you know. And I just could not, like, I couldn't wrap my head around that. So, like, 
I went back and I studied the Bible, and then that led me to studying uh, other religions, you know, that were based on the same Bible. I had, uh, you know, I had been introduced to uh, Kingdom Hall, which is like Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, and I, you know, went to uh, like a few of their meetings. So I went through all that and I was kind of like comparing based on what I was being taught and trying to see like there seems like there's something so similar here. There's something here that I want to I want to learn about, you know. So that led me to like so many different things. I had sat with Mormon missionaries at one point. Um, you know, I studied uh, Zen Buddhism, didn't really get it at the time. Uh, and then all of these kind of led me to getting interested in mythology, which is something I've always kind of, because I'm so geeky, you know, like I love comics and <laughs> Star Wars. And so my, my love for these stories that I had found some comfort in and my curiosity about these religions, I was kind of seeing like, wait a minute, this is, this is wild. Something is weird here because these are all the same stories. They're all the same exact stories. So like there's humanity here, but like it doesn't feel like people can see that. Hmm. So I came to the conclusion that, well, I must be an atheist because I don't think that any of these stories are more than stories, you know? But at the same time, I felt like, but there still must be a way to like be a good person. And so, um, so fast forward to 2016 mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I'm, I'm working with a coworker. There's a, uh, this pigeon like lands outside of our office in Hollywood. He kind of like, just like stumbles and, and I was like, oh man, I think he's like injured. But then one of my coworkers she came over and you know we go outside and uh you know she makes a little bed for it and we put it in the box and then uh she like leaned over and started chanting these words nam yo ho renge kyo nam yo ho renge kyo and i was like i was freaking out because <laughs> i was like hold on I, I what's happening right now i thought we were just here taking care of like a dying pigeon and and so I asked her, I was like, oh, are you, uh, are you casting a spell to bring it back to life? That was literally what I thought she was doing. She was like, uh, I'll never forget her answer. She said, um, I'm chanting for the pigeon's eternal life, you know, because in that moment, I thought what I was doing was very humanistic. And then this person comes out of nowhere and she even like was, was crying, you know, and I was like, what, what is this connection? What is she doing right now? Whatever that is, I need to learn this, you know? Hmm. I thought I was being so humanistic, like trying to help this this pigeon. She comes outside, starts chanting for its eternal life. Like, so, um, yeah, so that was how I got introduced. And uh, <laughs> she uh, invited me to an intro meeting. And I was like, obviously, like, I need to learn this incantation, you know, <laughs> this like Harry Potter, like, what are you doing? Um, and so like when I went, went to my first intro meeting, I knew something was different because it was a room full of like the most diverse people ever, like mm -hmm. people that I have interacted with in different areas of my life. They were all in the same room for the first time I had ever seen something like that. 
I mean, aside from, you know, going to Disneyland or whatever, what I mean to say is that this group, they were all like agreeing about the same life philosophy. Hmm. And so I was immediately like hooked. The other thing that I experienced was because of kind of the diversity and confusion in my life, I would often find myself getting stared at, like when I would go to places that was like a thing that I would often experience, you know, going to the grocery store, like people are looking at me kind of strange, you know, or like especially in school and stuff. And when I went into this place, I felt no judgment from anyone. Like nobody was like, what's he doing here? And so the humanism of SGI members was just unlike anything I had ever experienced, you know? And people that like wanted me to win and were asking me about my life and I was I was so suspicious. I'm like, what, what you want to know that for, you know? <laughs> and, and then like after I would like kind of take that step, you know, and like maybe share a little bit, it was just met with like so much warmth and then share a little more and then I would relax and then and then five years later, here we are. <laughs> yeah. You know? Wow. That's so encouraging. I, I'm, you're like taking me down my own memory lane as you're, as you're sharing all of this. Um, because it's, it's so real that the feeling of like non-judgment of just people that are like curious about you, but in the kindest, I want to support you kind of way. It's just so refreshing. I, I honestly, when I hear stories like this, I'm like, I just want everybody to chant. I want everyone yeah. to feel embraced in that way. Now I look back and I say like, what did, what causes could I have possibly made <laughs> to manifest just like incredible protection at that time, you know, cause it changed my life and it's, it saved whatever trajectory I think I was on, even though I had fooled myself into thinking it was a good one, you know? How did it stick? It's different for everybody, but yeah, how did that go for you? Were you just all in and you were super excited or was it hard to even chant every day? Why'd you continue? Mm. I had kind of seen how, I think I had had other kind of practices in my environment at that time and I felt that I had built up my kind of knowledge about what's going on in the world religiously. I had had a, a closer idea of like kind of just my own opinions about like everyone kind of believes the same thing and are arguing over details. That was how I felt, you know. And so because I kind of had that that background you know, the chanting was definitely weird to me, but using my voice wasn't, you know, mm -hmm. and the philosophy wasn't. And so, and the warmth of the members wasn't, you know, it was, it was all like, that was all stuff that I wanted. I wanted to have a solid life philosophy in which I could engage with the people that I want to engage with, you know, um, I had, I can now see, couldn't at the time and for many years, but I had like a lot of social anxiety, which built up this arrogance in my life, like as a defense mechanism, you know, to cover up all these insecurities of how I look and how I speak and how I dress, you know. Um, and so like everything that that I was learning in the SGI about changing my karma, changing my destiny, 
you know, achieving the things that I want to achieve and being able to attain enlightenment in this lifetime, coming from a neighborhood where I would see people getting stabbed, you know, I wanted to learn that. I wanted to believe that. I really wanted to believe that, you know. And I think there was also an element of of geekiness of just like, this is cool. (laughs) (laughs) This is cool. I chant like this is so cool, you know. And over the years, like it developed beyond just like this is cool to like this has got to be my foundation or else or else I don't think I have very long. And so I think jumping all the way in really helped me figure out if this is something for me or not. And I think the thing that kept drawing me further and further in was that there was no focus on like a God or a deity or an authority that's telling you what to do, you Mm -hmm. know. Even President Daisaku Ikeda, he, like, you know, I didn't feel that that was, like, a a guru or somebody that, you know, people were worshipping. I felt that he was just, like, a guy who had had, like, a lot of life experience that he's trying to share with people. So I started reading his, his writings, and I was like, I agree with all of this. Like, yeah, like, the dignity of life and... Yes, people have infinite potential that they don't realize sometimes because of stuff that happens to them, negative stuff that happens to them. I believed all of it, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and it was just really easy for me to feel because I had been in these environments where I had seen commonalities amongst people, you know. I had seen the similarities and, you know, all the different groups of people that I had been around and, you know, I noticed that, like, no matter where you come from, you complain, (laughs) for example. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I had seen these things. And so what Daisaku Ikeda was writing about and encouraging people to do, it was like he, he understood that part of life somehow. You know, that part that I felt like was for a long time exclusive to me. I felt like I can see this, nobody else can, and it doesn't make me feel better. You know, but then Mm -hmm. when I'm, when I continued to like read what he wrote and I was just like, man, he, he understands what something that I have inherently felt and he's mastered whatever that is, you know, and I want to learn that, you know, Mm. and, uh, yeah. That's so interesting that, um, basically that like common humanity that one can only observe if one has experienced diverse environments um it's actually like it's the solution to everything but i'm really encouraged to hear um how you began to see it that way whereas it was a source of loneliness earlier yeah definitely so so what i'm hearing is that you felt you know um this sense of embraced and like your your life philosophy was starting to click (laughs) but in terms of um your your struggles you know and how you're living your daily life what changed when you started chanting um everything little by little you know when you get into like a car and it's been cold outside and it's like fogged the windows fogged Mm -hmm. you start driving because you got to get where you need to go and you turn like the heater up you know Mm -hmm. and you're driving and it's like kind of like starting to clear and you're like looking under you know like 
that was how I felt my life was, was like, I'm starting to, to actually feel like I'm directing my life. I'm actually starting to feel like I have some say in what I experience. This fog started to, to lift and, um, you know, I remember like I had this, uh, man, it was like my dream car at the time. I had a stick shift, uh, red, race red, 2014 Mustang. I love the body on the 2014s and it had like a black racing stripe with pinstripes and it was tinted and, you know, th that was my car. Like I really, really loved that car. And uh, as I started chanting, I was realizing that I had an unhealthy attachment to this thing. I was realizing that, you know, when whenever it would just like somebody would bump into it or like uh, one time I had my car towed and the tow guys, when they were trying to open the door, they chipped my door. Little things like that would just send me into a rage, you know, like just seeing red, which is something that I've dealt with a lot, you know, um, over the years. It's just like this foundation of anger. Like, man, you better be careful or else I might get angry, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, I experienced this a lot. I put holes in like almost every place that I lived, you know, like punching walls and uh, I've like broken my hand and um, just a lot of like, I felt like there was a lot of violence in my life. When I started chanting, I started chanting about these things, you know, like, why do I get sent into a rage when my car door gets chipped? But then, like, as I started chanting, like, that idea of I want this person to suffer for hurting me became I care more about that person's life than a thing that doesn't have life. Yeah, it's amazing how this, what we call, you know, inner transformation or human revolution happens in these really, really small, small ways that only yeah. you would know. You know, of course, sometimes people in your environment can notice it as well, but it's like the deep in your heart stuff that you're like, why am I reacting this way? I never react this way. Yes, yes. And those are the most like profound moments, you know, it's not like, because like something else that I chanted for at the beginning of the practice, you know, people are telling me I can chant for anything. So I'm like, I want to be famous. <laughs> I want to make a lot of money and I want to be famous. Boom. That's my <laughs> prayer. Um, and so through chanting like that, you know, I ended up like being able to uncover like, all right, Falcon, that's a dream. That is not a goal. That's a dream. How do you turn that into a goal? And then I started to get ideas of like, well, maybe I could get like my song on the radio. And just through my own efforts, I was able to do that, you know? And those moments are great because they show you that you can do something like big. But I feel that those, those smaller moments, like those more personal moments, you know, those are like even more impactful, I feel, than getting the thing you chanted for. Mm -hmm. Because, because those, those moments are the ones that show you that you can be who you want to be, you know? But yeah, yeah, that actually leads really well into another question I wanted to ask you. I think what you're touching on is something that a lot of people um, who are new to Buddhism have a hard time understanding because it seems so counterintuitive, mm. which is um, 
this idea that earthly desires are enlightenment, which, yeah. you know, in theory is basically anything that, that you want to chant about is okay because it puts you on the path to actually accessing your enlightenment. Because if someone's yeah. like, okay, I'm listening to a podcast about Buddhism and this guy just said he's chanting <laughs> to be famous and make a lot of money, somebody explain. <laughs> right, but I right. mean, I, I totally know where you're coming from. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, you know, like uh, as an artist, I think that it's very easy to hang everything you're doing on ego um, hmm. because you know, you, you like compare and you like look at numbers and then compare and then you listen to what you're making and then compare. And so I think that insecurity of comparison for a lot of artists, especially for me, can create this like realm of ego, right? You know, in this practice, you'll have the wisdom to take the steps that you need to take to achieve your goals. Like for me, I... I was really judging myself. I want to be famous. Why do I want to be famous? What is that grounded in? That's what came up for me. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it would have just stayed in the realm of I want to be famous, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, in my experience practicing Buddhism and so many stories that I've heard from people I've interviewed and just from the community itself, um, people start chanting about a thing but then their life kind of expands so tremendously in the process that it opens up to all these other possibilities and a whole different set of goals and it just becomes yeah. more and more, you know? Um, so I, I wanna know what that part was like for you. So you start chanting about being famous, you get a song on the radio, but then like, um, yeah, what happened next or how would you say your, your sort of inner life and your orientation and how you see your purpose has started to change? Yeah, oh man, that's a great question, you know, chanting to become famous is in itself i realized later um an egotistical pursuit you know and then i started to ask myself well why am i even making music is it because of ego and so you know i had that song on the radio and then a year later because i was able to get that song on the radio uh, and just like continuing to make efforts but what i felt i was doing was like like digging at this I wanted to see what was underneath what's what's deeper there and it was at one point I, you know I was chanting for a record deal actually uh, and this was a really good lesson for me because I got it and it was nothing like what I expected and then like my relationship with the label I started to realize like the way that I thought about like being an artist was like either you're nobody or you're the person that was how I thought about it. And through like chanting about this and uncovering more and more, I started to realize that what I was doing was like ignoring everything else in between, all the other possibilities. You know, I was restricting myself because in my mind, in my limited human brain, it was two scenarios. Either Falcon fails and doesn't achieve all of the things he wants, you know, or Falcon becomes like a superstar. Those were the two extremes, like in my mind, you know, mm -hmm. founded on nothing because nowhere in there was I saying like, this is what I want to do with my life. This is what I want to do with, you know, whatever like ability I have, you mm. know? So I think that's really where like bootability comes into play now, where it's like, I've been able to develop my bootability 
which I think is like, what's really in my heart? What do I want? What do I genuinely want in my heart? I want to connect people, right? That was how I started to realize, like, whatever I do, whether I become, you know, what I thought I was going to become or I become something else, you know, it doesn't matter right now anymore because all I know is that I want to encourage people and I want to I want to be there for people, you know. Yeah, I mean, that that makes a, a lot of sense. And I but I, I do have to ask, I'm thinking from the perspective of someone who's never chanted, they're like, yeah. How did you how did you get there? You know, was it just the chanting? Did it make you feel differently? Or was there a moment like an aha moment? You know? mm. Yeah, I think it was like a combination of of everything I've learned in the Soka Gakkai and and continue to learn, you know. There is a uh, passage from uh, the letters that uh, the founder of our Buddhism wrote. Uh, his name is Nichiren Daishinin, and he wrote these letters to people who uh, wanted to believe in their Buddhability, essentially, right? Mm. And, um, you know, 13th century Japan. So, like, when I used to read these letters at first, felt very foreign and far and, like, um, like I was, like, at a museum, like, learning about, like, old Japanese society is how it felt. Um, but then I started to realize, like, man, some of this stuff, like, feels like it might be relevant. There was a moment uh, a few years ago in which uh, this was, like, when I first had started practicing. Um, um, you know, so a few years ago, there was uh, uh, someone else who chants. Um, I had asked her. I developed a friendship with her, you know, um, and was kind of, like, learning from from her chanting. Uh, and she's chanted for many, many years. And she's like, you know, older than me and uh, just like really came to respect and trust her. And so I asked her one day, like, uh, I was like, hey, do you, do you think I'm arrogant? You know, and immediately she was like, yes. I was like, I was like, oh, snap. <laughs> and, uh, you know, because I, I kind of like was ready to hear an honest answer. But <laughs> I wasn't ready to be like. But I was ready, actually, because like something in her life knew she said it with such a warm smile that I was like, how am I not feeling insulted right now? Like, normally I'd be out the room like, all right, peace, <laughs> you know. And she just like wrapped me in this like, yes, you're arrogant and here's here's the way. And so she pointed me to, you know, these letters by Nichiren. And there's a quote in there. Uh, the name of the letter is questions and answers on embracing the lotus sutra and in this letter Nichiren writes now if you wish to attain buddhahood you have only to lower the banner of your arrogance and cast aside the staff of your anger and devote yourself exclusively to the one vehicle of the lotus sutra <laughs> and i have felt like that was written for me i knew exactly what he meant by banner of arrogance and staff of anger i knew exactly what he meant you know and so because that had touched me so deeply, I wanted to believe everything else in that, in that sentence, which is if I want to attain Buddhahood, if I want to attain enlightenment, which I think in society feels like such a mythical idea, this feels real. This feels like something that's in my heart, you know? And so I really started to chant 
about that passage like what does this mean how do i lower my banner of arrogance i'd never heard this before you know and on top of that i get to have people who i can you know like hit up and ask like like man what's my banner of arrogance you know and we can discuss without judgment we can dialogue and i was just really like kind of blown away by that level of care chanting really helped me unlock that like piece of the letter i feel that i had read mm -hmm. and over the years i could feel myself becoming more and more grounded as i was able to lower this banner of arrogance which i came to understood in my life it means you know like there are so many things that i have to be insecure about in every aspect of my environment and it would be silly for me to think that that's just going to go away on its own somehow you know it would it would that's that's giving away my buddhability to my environment is like it'll just get better somehow but this guy is telling me that i can make it better and mm -hmm. that's crazy that's pretty crazy and so like that's what started to happen was just like i feel less offended by things which helps me see the true nature of them you know uh recently just like weeks ago i was able to join like an artist group you know in which like we bounce ideas off of each other and for the first time like people are giving me feedback that i'm not like thinking i'm just the worst person in the world over mm. and what what that's doing is helping me actually learn and actually grow way faster than i could have you know thinking back thinking back now to this kid who grew up wearing a mask everywhere he went and trying to find you know a life philosophy or a sense of purpose who then kind of found himself embraced by you know this buddhist community and all the things you just shared what's sort of your your dream for the future you know thinking about where you're from mm. yeah i think like you know, again, I think I've always kind of inherently had this desire for, like, betterment and, like, you know, connection and, you know, community. And uh, as I as I really feel that most people do. Um, but, like, yeah, I think the pain that I experienced was so intense and so extreme. You know, I remember like from a very young age feeling suicidal, you know, and feeling like I just want to like have friends and, you know, encourage people and like be a positive force in the universe. But then feeling like my environment was telling me that I could never be that, you know. Mm. And so... You know, Daisaku Ikeda says that people who suffer the most deserve to be the happiest. And I used to think that that meant that I was entitled to, you know, like, being happier than anyone else, which made me feel I'm entitled to, you know, the fame and money and things that I want. That's how I felt. Hmm. But after chanting about this phrase more, I've come to understand that I feel that what he's really saying and really encouraging me about by saying that people who suffer the most deserve to be the happiest 
is actually that this pain that I've experienced can become my superpower. You know, this like thing that used to make me feel isolated and lonely and depressed and suicidal can actually become the thing that is unique to me, is authentic to me, that I can use in a positive way, you know. I want to build bridges, you know, between people. I want to be a bridge builder, you know, like bridges like based on hope and commonality and humanity above all else, dignity of life, you know, because I don't see that right now a lot, you know, like I just I just don't see it. And I think we can do better as people. Falcon's journey was so inspiring to me and feels so relevant, especially in 2021, because feeling like you don't fit in, especially in such a polarized time, is a real struggle. But Buddhism teaches that everyone has a purpose in life, and we can find both ourselves and commonality with other people if we're willing to challenge our own insecurities. Tapping into your bootability, courage, wisdom, and compassion is the way to do just that. We'll talk a lot more about this on future episodes, but for now, we'll end with a quick reminder of our request for voicemails for an upcoming episode about love and relationships. If you'd like to submit a question, please email us a voice memo by January 26th, which you can record on your phone and then email to podcast at sgi-usa.org. Please keep the message to no more than two minutes and submit only if you're comfortable having it aired on the show. If you want to remain anonymous, that's fine. Just let us know in the email. That's all for today, and we'll see you next week.